Well, this morning we're going to look at Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Last week, we considered Paul's exhortation to be a people devoted to prayer. Specifically in that, we saw how we are called not only to pray steadfastly, but we are to pray for God to open a door for the word, praying evangelistically, and so praying with the gospel in mind. But as we continue reading the book of Colossians, we know that we are called to more than just pray. So with that in mind this morning, I want us to hear verses 5 and 6 from the book of Colossians chapter 4. Paul writes, Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that your Holy Spirit is present to illuminate our understanding of it and to help make application. So God, would you not only help us understand it this morning, would you help us to live it for the good of others and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when was the last time you had a gospel conversation with an unbeliever. How did it go? Maybe another question to ask is maybe less intrusive on your soul this morning. Do you find yourself regularly engaging others in the gospel? Or is this an area you constantly struggle with? You know, when we think about how we are called to relate to unbelievers, our tendency can typically go one of two ways. One is that we can be judgmental and always being critical and judgy towards, is that a word, judgy? Judgy towards people in their sin. And we always kind of want to kind of take the high road and look holier than thou towards them and be hypercritical of them in the midst of their sin. So that's one tendency we have in our relationship towards unbelievers. Another is to avoid them completely. Don't need to be around non-Christians. We don't need to do what they do. We don't need to even be remotely associated with them in any way. And obviously, neither of these are to be the case for the Christian. We are called to love unbelievers with the ultimate aim of seeing them transformed by the power of the gospel, to walk as disciples. And so when I ask, do you find yourself regularly engaging others in the gospel, it's, it's a question that we all ought to take to heart. And if we're not, why not? Well, this morning, as we think about this Instruction from Colossians 4. We see clearly that the Lord calls us as his people to faithfully steward our relationships to unbelievers. He refers to them here as outsiders, but clearly they are unbelievers, non-Christians. So the question is, how do we do that? What does he say in these two short verses about relating to unbelievers? Let's consider that this morning. How are we to love non-Christians well? two particular ways that he points out. 
We're to love with our walk and we're to love with our word. To love them with our walk, we're to love them with our word. Let's consider, first of all, loving with our walk. We see that in verse 5. Paul says, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. Again, the word outsiders here is clearly a reference to the unbeliever. Some translations may, may actually say, walk in wisdom. Continue steadfastly or continue, con- conduct yourselves wisely. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. The word walk is a common way that the Bible uses to describe one's way of life. We've already seen that in the first three chapters of the book of Colossians. Colossians 1 verse 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Colossians 2 verse 6, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. Chapter 3 verse 7, speaking of earthly passions, Paul says, in these you once walked. And so this language of walking is a descriptor of, what it, of, of how we live out our lives. So here in verse 5, Paul is urging the Colossians to be wise, to walk wisely. And so let's consider these, these two things that he calls us here in considering our walk. He says, number one, walk wisely. Walk wisely. Again, he's Answering the question, so to speak, implied here, how are we to relate to outsiders? How do we relate to the unbeliever? And his answer is that, one, walk in wisdom. Wisdom is something that Paul has already highlighted much in the letter. Again, we can go back and see this idea of wisdom showing up regularly in the book of Colossians. In chapter 1, verse 9, he says that wisdom is something that's spiritual. Implied there is given by the Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 28, it is to be found. Wisdom is to be found in our teaching. In chapter 2, verse 3, wisdom finds its source in Jesus, in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 16, wisdom is something that we admonish and encourage others in. But what is wisdom? What are we talking about when it comes to wisdom? You know, several years ago, a group of us went to southern France to assist a large Bible distribution effort among North Africans, immigrating back and forth between North Africa and Europe. And as we spent time in various parts of that city, we were in one or two areas that required a bit more awareness. I remember in a particular place in the city, it was in the port area of this city, as we were having a all these cars come through, we were giving out literature and Bibles to Muslim peoples, having conversations when we could, There was a particular location where there was a team of thieves. Some of you may remember those thieves. Uh, They were kind of working together and one would kind of come up and uh, distract someone on one side of the car while the other one would go around the other side of the car and grab whatever he could from the car. And so we had to kind of be on our guard a bit because we were watching this unfold and we had to have a little bit of street smarts, we could say. A lot of these people were just kind of coming oblivious to to what was going on around them. And so when we think about wisdom, that's kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about having spiritual street smarts. Wisdom is a spirit-given, we could say biblically informed way to live faithfully and skillfully in life. Not just going blindly into life, but to having some smarts about us of how to live out the life that God has called us to live in Christ. It's it's knowledge applied. If you go back to chapter one, we see this, this connection between wisdom and living. 
Chapter one, verse nine, Paul says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord requires wisdom. It's dependent upon it. And so wisdom is knowledge applied in our life as Christians. This is to be directly in contrast to the false teachers that were in this region. And so Paul is basically saying, listen, you're, you're to walk in wisdom. You're to walk wisely, not like these false teachers. The life of the Christian should look remarkably different. You know, you've probably heard the phrase often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. We don't know if it's really his or not. And it goes something like this, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. That sounds really good, it's just bad theology. Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. That statement on its own is not that helpful. You can't preach the gospel without using words. However, I think the sentiment behind it is somewhat helpful. Our lives ought to be a reflection of the gospel. Our lives ought to be something that character, is characteristic of the gospel's impact in us. And so as we're called to walk wisely, we're called to walk as those who have been transformed by the power of the gospel, and that ought to be more and more evident to the outsider. So we're to walk with wisdom. But number two, we're to walk intentionally. Notice specifically here how Paul argues what, how he explains, we could say, what this wise walk looks like. He says, conduct yourselves wisely, walk, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. There's kind of his qualification of what walking in wisdom looks like. Making the best use of the time. Literally, it's buying up the time, redeeming the time. Literally, we're called to buy up the time, exhausting all possibilities that are before us when it comes to communicating the gospel. This is past week at the convention, day one. I was there, got there late Sunday night, got there first thing Monday morning, and the first thing that I did was not run to the convention hall for the pastor's conference. The first thing I did was to go to the exhibit hall to Southern Seminary's Booth, where I graduated from, it's the best seminary in the world. My seminary was giving away coffee mugs for the first 30 alumni that came by and referred someone to the school. And this was not just any mug. It was a black mug with the emblem of the seminary on it. And when you put coffee in it, the picture of the seminary campus shows up. It's, it's a great, that's a great thing. So on Monday morning, I strategically made a beeline for the seminary exhibit, got my seminary mug. I referred one of you, I won't say who, to the seminary. So thank you for helping me get my coffee mug. You see, I think that's the essence of what we're getting at here with Paul's words. I knew that time was of the essence before the mugs would be gone. So I was buying up the time, I was taking advantage of the time given me. I made a priority to get that mug and that's exactly what we see here. Paul's saying, make the best use of the time. 
The time he's referring to is the period between now and the second coming of Jesus. There's this eschatological urgency here. This view of Jesus is coming again and there's this sense of urgency that Paul is reminding us that we ought to have in light of that coming again of Jesus. We're to make the use of the time, the time being a reference to that second coming. Brothers and sisters, we know that life is short and opportunity is often fleeting, isn't it? Ephesians, Paul says something very similar in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, 15 and 16. He says, look carefully, how then you, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He's reminding us that we live in a present evil age, a, a time marked by sin, darkness, depravity, and that we, this is where we live now, but there's coming a day when Christ will return, he will make all things new, and that day is fast approaching. It's a reminder that the days are evil, that spiritual darkness prevails, so that when there is an opportunity to speak light into the darkness, we must take advantage of it. Brothers and sisters, I just ask you to consider how you spent this past week. What opportunities did God give you to speak of Christ? And of those opportunities, how often did you take advantage of them? To leverage that opportunity, to buy up the time, so to speak, to speak of Jesus. Friends, you may have that very opportunity this very day this coming week. This is something that ought to be the driving priority of every Christian, that we are called to buy up the time, to make the best use of the time we've been given in light of the coming again of Christ, so that we're speaking the truth of the gospel into the lives of those we know and love. Friend, you may be here today and you've not yet put your hope and trust in Christ. And you may be thinking, well, I know all this about Jesus. I know that he came and he died for my sin. And I know that I should turn from my sin and put my trust in him. I know that, that, that that's something that I probably should do and, and consider. But there's still time. Friend, friend our, our, our plea to you this morning would be, don't presume upon time. Today is the day of salvation. Friend, if you're here today and you've not trusted in Jesus, you're not following Christ, you need to understand that God gave his only son to come into this world to live the life you should have lived and he died the death you rightly deserve because of your rebellion against him. He took upon himself the form of God. He went to a cross, or the form of man, even though he was God, he went to a cross and he, he died upon that cross, shedding his own blood to forgive people just like you if you would turn from your sin and put your hope in him. You would be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that is our plea for you today. Don't presume upon some some time you think you may have still yet to consider this. Friend, you may be here as a child, a teenager. You may think, well, you know, I'm coming to church every week. Put your hope in Christ today. Turn from your sin and understand that Jesus is your only hope. 
He is the one true savior that God has given for us to be forgiven of our sins. Friend, look no more to yourself. Look no no more to the ways of this world. Look only to Christ and find salvation in him today. Fellow Christians, we need to continue to be faithful in our walk. Are we walking wisely? Are we walking intentionally, making the best use of the time? And that's what we're called to do, aren't we? Love with our walk. But number two, we're called to love with our words. Look at verse six. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You know, how we manage our lives and time is critical, but there does come a moment when we must speak. Yes, live wisely. Yes, redeem the time. But there, are, there is that moment when you must say something to someone. This is where that quote earlier, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. It's always necessary to use words in preaching the gospel. Whether it's showing them the words from the scripture and letting God do the talking, whether it's you just sharing the gospel and using scripture in conversation, you must speak if the gospel is to be heard and people are to be saved. This is the means God has ordained for people to come to him. So not only must we pray, verses two through four, not only must we walk wisely, verse five, we must speak, verse six. See the pattern here, pray, live, speak. That's how you do evangelism. You pray, you live, you speak. Notice Paul speaks here not so much about the content of what we speak, that's chapters one and two, but how we are to speak it. How you say something, how you say something can be almost as important in what you say. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious. Or let your conversation be always full of grace. Now, when you think about that, what, when you hear that, was that divine grace that God gives or is that human graciousness? Let your speech be gracious. That sounds like human graciousness. Or let your conversation be always full of grace. That's where it may get a little tricky. When you're, was that divine grace or is that human graciousness? And I think while you can take it to mean that one's speech ought to be characterized by kindness, and most certainly it should, And Paul has something more in mind. He's saying your conversations with outsiders, with unbelievers, ought to be marked by and consistent with the grace of God in the gospel. In other words, how you speak and what you speak need to match. The grace that saves you is the same grace that informs how you treat other people and how you speak into their lives. Listen, You will never argue or harshly coerce someone into the kingdom of God. Your posture ought to be one of gracious disposition that reflects the beauty of God's grace that has changed you. So I think most likely here that reference is is one to God's divine grace, but a grace that transforms you into extending grace to others. In other words, let your conversation be filled with God's grace. Our speech ought to be filled with the grace that saves and as we speak, we're able to speak with words full of God's power. 
Now, two things in particular about this gracious speaking. First of all, we need to speak winsomely. Notice he says, let your speech always be gracious, and then he says, seasoned with salt. We know that from Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount calls us to be the salt of the earth. But here, Paul's saying our speech is to be seasoned with salt. And we know that salt was often used in seasoning or preserving food. That was its purpose. And so in, in light of that understanding and in light of what Paul, and oftentimes we see in this, in this day and time, and certainly in the Bible, when it comes to being salty, it doesn't have the same meaning as being salty today in our terminology. But our being seasoned with salt, our speech being seasoned with salt, our speech with others ought to have a wholesome influence, a purifying effect. I think even behind this sentiment is this idea that our conversations with unbelievers even should have a bit of charm and wit to them. Being seasoned with salt. Friends, think about your conversations with non-Christians. And I hope you're having many of them. I hope you're not the type that just wants to avoid all non-Christians. That's not Christian. But as you engage unbelievers, what kind of conversation are you having with them? Is your speech marked by grace, divine grace, which in, 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 informs how you speak to them? Is it marked by grace? Is it seasoned with salt? Or is your conversation tasteless or too spicy? Or simply, does your conversation just sound like everyone else's? Can't be distinguished. Your conversation can't be distinguished from any other person's conversation. Brothers and sisters, what's clear here is that our speech ought to be notably different. Our speech ought to be characterized in a, in a way that's much different than the unbelieving world that we engage we need to get the gospel right. That's what Paul is saying in these first two chapters. You need to get the gospel right. You need to cling to the true gospel. There's false gospels being, uh, being propagated. You need to cling to the true gospel. And now as he's talking about communicating that gospel, he's telling us how to do that. With grace, marked by divine grace, seasoned with salt. Brothers and sisters, we know that content matters. What you say to people matters. But another important reality is how you say it also matters. It matters. Speak winsomely. We also need to speak competently. Notice he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Notice that the point is really dependent on the previous. You see the so that there, don't you? Be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The reason our speech needs to be winsome is so that we can speak clearly and competently about Christ. I think one of the assumptions Paul has here is as he's calling us to pray, as he's calling us to live wisely before outsiders, he knows there's going to be a moment, if you're doing those things, listen, if you're praying for the open door for the word, if you're living wisely, people are going to ask you, what in the world is wrong with you? 
They may not say it like that. They may. They may ask you, what's different about you? I think sometimes we think that we always have to generate the evangelistic conversations. We've got to come up with some way to bridge over into the conversation. Friends, if you're praying and you're living wisely, those conversations, oftentimes, not every time, they they will be natural. People want to know why you're different. Why don't you get upset at work when something goes bad? Why are you always kind and gracious? Why do you speak in the way that you do? And at that point is when you need to know how you ought to answer. And I think that how to answer is both regarding tone and content. I think Paul's highlighting here the use of discernment in our conversations. And brothers and sisters, discernment with people go, goes a long way. How you communicate with people matters. Listen, you may come in guns blazing and win an argument and yet lose the person. And that's a sad indictment on your evangelism. I just, just last night I was watching a video on this pastor in Knoxville, Tennessee. He, he doesn't even deserve to be called a pastor. Speaking at a pulpit in a church, calling for the execution of all LGBTQ people. Execution. That brother, if he's even a brother, has not read the Bible, much less Colossians chapter 4. He, 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 has, he has no idea of what grace truly does. Your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to make advances for the good of the gospel and for the good of others, no matter what worldview, no matter what cultural situation people may find themselves in that you're engaging, if you come in guns blazing and want to win an argument, you may win an argument, but you may very well lose that person in how you did it. How you did it. We know that the gospel is the power of God. We know that it's ultimately not up to us, and we know that ultimately it's not in our power to convert someone. But we can make a mess along the way. We can cause all kinds of hindrances that are unnecessary. Friends, we ought to know how to answer each person. I think that also implies that we don't speak to everyone in the same way. Now, when we think about this, I think the the message Paul gives here is clear. I think when you take verses 2 through verse 6, that outline that I gave you earlier is is right there. How do you you relate to the outsider? You pray for open doors of opportunity. You live in a way that's wise before them. And you speak the truth in grace, seasoned with salt, to them. The question is, how do you even get to that point? All of this assumes there's going to be a conversation. And we live in a day when it can be difficult to gain the trust of those around us, even to have this kind of conversation about the gospel. And so as we conclude our time, I want to leave you here with a few practical and important steps, I think, that's helpful when it comes to engaging outsiders well. And I get these from a book called I Once Was Lost. It's a book written largely 
from the testimony of secular people who had been transformed by the gospel. And these are things that I think are helpful for us when we think about how we approach non-Christians. First of all, we pray. Pray in the sense of chapter, or excuse me, in verses two and three. Certainly we are praying for opportunities, but when we're in the opportunity, we should pray in the midst of that opportunity. Sometimes people, as you're engaging them, and this is increasingly so, I think, may say very critical things about the gospel. They may say very unhelpful, cruel things about us. They may treat us and disdain us in a way that's, that's discouraging and that immediately thought, uh, causes that, that, that uh, defense mechanism to kick in. And oftentimes our reaction is to be defensive or react in an unhelpful way. And so it's always good not only to pray for the opportunity, to, but to pray in the opportunity. Pray for your own heart, just as much as you're praying for theirs. Not only should we pray, we should learn. People often don't want to listen to us because we show no interest in listening to them. One of the best things you can do for your witness is to try and learn from those you're seeking to love. They have a story, and that story is worth listening to. And listening builds trust. Listen, people are not your gospel project. People aren't projects. They're image bearers that should be valued and cared for and loved and pursued and listened to. Learn from them. You may still disagree with their worldview, and certainly if they're not a Christian, they're going to have a different worldview than you. But as you seek to empathize with them and learn from them, it will go a long way. Jesus listened to people's story and so should we. Elliot Clark, in a book I just read called Evangelism as Exiles, said, I doubt many of us are guilty of browbeating anyone with the gospel. But if we're honest, we're often culpable for not respecting our opponents, for not showing due honor for using our words to shame our enemies or attack their agendas, for casually slandering those with whom we disagree, even rejoicing when our sarcasm gets laughs or our meme gets likes. If you don't know what a meme is, just ask someone under 30. It's true. Casually slandering those we disagree with, not helpful. We should learn. A third step is we should bond with them. One of our initial reactions to those who don't follow Jesus is to avoid them. But Jesus demonstrated that he was willing to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I mean, I don't know if this is common sense, but how can you share the gospel with lost people if you're not spending time with lost people? And then don't get offended when they act like lost people. They're lost. And Paul would remind us in another part, I think it's Paul, maybe Peter, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. Friends, instead of taking the instinctive step backwards, we should take the purposeful kingdom step forward to engage people with the gospel. The best, listen, the best gospel conversations will likely not happen in this room on a Sunday. Could, they could happen but likely they won't happen, at least commonly, regularly. 
The best conversations won't happen at church or even at some evangelistic event, but through everyday conversation in the midst of life. So Redeeming Grace, you need to learn. Learn to be friends with non-Christians. Learn to love them well. Learn to, in the midst of conversation, some of the best gospel conversations won't happen here, but they'll be, they'll be at the ball practice on the side. They'll be in conversations about yard work with your neighbor. Your kids playing at the park. The co-worker at lunch, and on and on we could go, and endless conversations. Friends, if we, if we find ourselves taking that instinctive step backwards instead of that purposeful step forward, we need to, we need to really look in, into our own hearts of how we're loving the outsider. Number four, we affirm. Another reaction we tend to have toward outsiders is to judge them. But we need to learn ways to affirm them, not, not in their sin but looking for something good among God's common grace that he's given and affirming that. Rather judging, rather than judging or simply remaining silent, we need to look for ways to look for the good and to encourage and affirm that in them. We're building trust and to mean it. And then number five, we welcome them. Not only should we try and join others where they are, we need to learn to invite people into the lives, into our very lives, where we are. Extending hospitality to non-Christian friends, neighbors, acquaintances will serve the cause of the gospel well. So when you think about conducting yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time, here's some very practical ways to do that. We seek to live lives of intentionality in these kinds of ways. We will find that we will have increasing opportunity to love unbelievers well and ultimately speak the truth into their lives. Brothers and sisters, doing these things is not in and of itself evangelism. We know that evangelism must be a proclamation, must involve a proclamation of the gospel. But these practical things will help you get to evangelism. And brothers and sisters, even if they say no to the gospel, we still love them. We still move towards them. We still care for them. We still treat them as an image bearer, praying that one day by God's grace, they will, they will put their trust in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we've been called to pray. We've been called to live wisely. And we've been called to speak faithfully into the lives of unbelievers. It's not always easy. The one thing that we need to keep in mind is that the Lord is not calling us to be innovative or clever. He's calling us to be faithful. He's calling us to be faithful. Faithful in believing the gospel, faithful in living the gospel, and yes, faithful in proclaiming the gospel. By God's grace, let's be faithful stewards of that glorious gospel to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for exposing our own sluggishness, our own apathy, our own carelessness when it comes to being your ambassadors. Father, would you let this word that we've heard from Colossians 4 today, Lord, would you, 
Let that resonate in our hearts. God, I pray that as we walk out these doors today, that we would not just close this book and forget about the things that you've taught us. But God, that these would be things that we would live in our daily conversations. The conversations that we have this afternoon with family that may, family members that may not know you. With our coworkers tomorrow as they're living in the midst of darkness, blind to their sin. God, would you help our speech to be different? Would you help our lives to be lived out in wisdom and our, our speech to be very intentional? Reflections of the gospel and filled with the gospel. Conversations with our children, our neighbors, other other acquaintances. Lord, would you help us, God, to be a gospel in a gospel-filled people and a, and a people that pursue others with the prayer and the hope of seeing their lives transformed by the very gospel that has transformed us. God, would you work in that way? Would you help us to be reminded that we have a redeemer that loves us and gave himself for us? That we would delight in him and that part of delighting in him would be speaking faithfully of him. God, would you help us do that to your glory and for the good of others, we pray in Christ's name, amen.